Hello, welcome to Behind the Scenes with me, Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which people working in entertainment, behind the cameras, kindly share with us their never-before-heard anecdotes and stories. These are voices you don't often hear. I also chat with performers and actors to get a glimpse behind the glamour, the business behind the show. If you enjoy our podcast and like to consider becoming a Patreon member and support the podcast further, please check out the Patreon link below. Also, if you're interested in any of my steampunk murder mystery novels, then please go to steamsmokeandmirrors.com. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Cue the music, Marky. Welcome to part two of our behind-the-scenes chat with the true godfather of British light entertainment television. His non-stop career has spanned six decades, working on the most popular high-profile shows on our screens. Last time, we barely scratched the surface of the TV series he's been involved in. In part one, we talked about those golden days at Thames Television, working with Huey Green and David Nixon and Kenny Everett under the auspices of the great Philip Jones. So it's an honour. It really is an honour to welcome back and to carry on where we left off. One of the great names of British television, producer, director, turned actor, <laughs> Mr. Royston Mayo. Welcome back, sir. I'm, I'm glad to be back. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your time. And the feedback, I've got to tell you, since last week, when last we chatted, has been fantastic. For example, Roger Edwards, who's a producer on Family Fortunes, one of the producers on Bullseye, uh, he was chatting with you up at Central all those years ago. And it, we didn't catch phrase at that time, I, should, I would imagine. I believe you were, sir. I believe you were. <laughs> and it, we were talking about Huey and based on that, the conversation that you and I had. And Roger and I actually came to the conclusion, and I value your opinion on this. Do you think maybe the media stroke history has done a bit of a number on Huey Green? Do you think maybe it served him very badly? Oh, totally. Absolutely, totally. Um, you know, the, yes, I do. Uh, most of the bad, well, in fact, all of the bad articles that you read about Huey are, people, are from people that never even met him or worked with him. You know, it's all, it's all hearsay. But it, it, it's, it's sad, and I have no idea why they should attack the man so badly. They did the same with Michael Miles. Uh, before him, and they did the same with Wilfred Pickles. Mm. Um, you know, um, Huey was a, a very, 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 very popular personality on television. He couldn't sing, he couldn't dance, he couldn't do anything really. Mm. Um, he was just full of charisma, and and he and a walking caricature. He was easy to impress, you know. Yes. But he was a nice man. His heart was in the job. I mean, I worked alongside him. I never knew him do anything. Uh, improper or, or inappropriate or say anything inappropriate. And I was with him drunk. I've got drunk with him and he was still a perfect gentleman. <laughs> um, you know, I, so when I read these things about Huey Green, I think, yeah, well, you know, I wonder what happened. Uh, for instance, I'll give you a good, I'll give you a good example. We, Huey and I were in, di uh, in uh, a dinner one day and we had a very, 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 very hard day. And we were both starving, and it was about 10 o'clock at night, and we managed to get in the restaurant for the last order. And we were really, 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 really tired. And Huey was desperate to talk to me about uh, something that had happened personally to him. Uh, and we were sitting, and, and he was deep in conversation. And this guy came up and slapped him on the shoulder and said, give me your autograph, or are you too busy coughing? Aha, excuse me, old folk. And one of those awful things, you know, around the middle of, 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 of Green talking about something very personal. And Green turned around and said, Do, would, would you mind? I'm having my dinner. Please go away. And this guy said, oh, fine, all right, then you can fuck off too. And walked out of the restaurant. Mm. Now, that was a good example. Green didn't tell him to fuck off. Uh -huh. Green was, was nice. He just said, would you mind? I'm having my dinner. Uh -huh. 
Uh, I think that would have happened to anybody. And I can imagine if that guy worked for the Arkfield Herald or something, him going back to the office and, and you know, phone, phone in the copy and Huey Green told me to accept blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But, and there were, there were I mean, not bad, every, every one of us. Um, and I can only think that the people that wrote bad things about Huey probably invaded his privacy at some point in time or another. That's, that's all I can think. There is also a traditional, isn't there, of building stars up and then knocking them down, getting great joy in knocking them down. Well, the press certainly didn't build Huey up. I mean, he builds himself up on television mm. with very, very little help from, from the press. Mm. You know, and very little help from the television industry as well. I mean, he wasn't very popular amongst the hierarchy of television uh, because he, he spoke truth to power. Mm-hmm. You know, he really did. Um, uh, and, and he used to say to to people like Jeremy Isaacs, oh, no, I didn't enjoy this week last week. I thought it was biased. Mm. That sort of thing. Which yeah. you or I would probably have thought, oh, excuse me, it's somebody important. I'll just I'll bottle that. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep it for the wife. You know, yeah. it's... Um, so, so Green didn't make himself popular with figures of authority, um, which is a shame. And that might have been because he came from being a star at 14 and being a squadron leader and various other things. It might have been. Uh, but, I mean, I, ne- I never got a sense of superiority from you. I never got that at all from, from him. Uh, but I did see him abused. I see him abused on many, many occasions. Mm. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, at that time, you working on Opportunity Knox with Huey Green, as I said last time, you it, you really developed an entire generation of light entertainment performers. But there's the point I wanted to make. Before Opportunity Knox, you were very instrumental in developing the career of our premier impressionist, Mike Yarwood. Yeah, Indeed. And, and oddly enough, I was talking with his, his wife the other day. Um, well, I'm talking about an email with, with Sunday the other day. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when I was a cameraman. I mean, I, my first wife um, was working in, in Manchester City somewhere and, or Stockport somewhere and said, uh, this, there's a kid that does impressions. He says he does impressions, but he's never performed. But he'd like to know what, how, how to do it because he can do it, but he doesn't know how to put it together. So would you have a look at him? So I said, yeah. So I, I invited him to the pub and he did about three or four impressions of it. Flew me away. Uh, it never it never appeared. So we did things like teaching him links, writing him bits. It was things like Eddie Waring. I mean, people don't, I've never heard of Eddie Waring now, but Eddie Waring now was very, very big. Uh, and um, show business people. And it, it occurred to me that this man, this brilliant, unbelievable genius of an impressionist, and he is, Mike Yard, he's a genius, he could listen to you, Colin, for five minutes mm. and then do you, and you would be on the floor with hysterics because you'd find the caricature of you that yeah. you don't even know is there. I mean, his impression of me is cruel, I can tell you. <laughs> It is. It's awful, um, but 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 funny, and that's the main thing. So yeah. Mike's got this, this this wonderful ability of being able to pick uh, find people very quickly. So we said at the time, I was working with a guy called David Lamb. We were writing together, uh, and um, David was bored for a time, and, and we said, look, uh, try don't don't do the entertainers. Try Mike Millen, Harold Wilson, Arthur Scargill. We're going back away now, uh-huh. you know, but. Uh, all the, the people that, that people have heard of, but they've, ne- they've never seen, not taken the mickey out of. Mm. So we'll do the comedy lines that you don't want to do with Kendall, but we'll do them as, as Edward Heath. Uh, and and that's the way that began. <clears throat> Directional thing. What are you saying over there? Turn over there. Things like that we taught him to do. Yes. Uh, and took him to a club called the Yew Tree in, in, in Manchester and put him on. <laughs> And he died an absolute death. And if ever he sees this, he all listens to it. You remember the first show he did was um, a man in a lift, right? In a lift. Uh, and, uh, and he said, I wonder whether you could just try, try the other button. That was the joke or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But his hands were yeah. shaking so much he couldn't do the joke. He was so nervous. You know, I mean, the mother, I said to Mike, well, well I'll, I'll deal, I'll carry on with you. I don't want to be a manager or anything, take a percentage or anything like that, but I'll, I'll, 
I'll work with you until um, the uh, Royal Variety Show, the, the Royal Commanders, it was called in those uh-huh. days. Uh, and his mum and dad, and he, they all thought that was a joke, but it wasn't. Because yeah. he did the Royal Commanders, and that was the night I said to him, right, you're on your own now, sweetheart. Yeah, because he um, became a star, didn't he? Well, and then some. And, I mean, he, he, to this day, most impressionists still regard him as being the best. Uh, when when we were with with Mike learning, there was an impressionist on the circuit called Johnny Moore, who was wonderful, but he did singing impressions. And Johnny was just wonderful. And, and, and he's smart and, and handsome. And uh, Mike... Uh, aspire to be Johnny Moore. But the funny thing is, if you look at Mike Stills of him doing Ken Dodd or, or Tony Cooper or anybody, he looks like the person. Mm. That's the in, in, incredible thing. He needn't do any voices. He looks like the person. Oh, Mike, yeah. Mike's a great star. I'm very, very proud of my time with him, yes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. We talked last time about you, my contention that you created how to direct magic on television with David Nixon shows. But I, I'm guessing it, I'm hunching a, a guess that it is kind of different working with Tommy Cooper. Well, yes, because I mean, Tommy, Tommy's magic wasn't magic. His, mm. his magic was, his magic was comedy. Um, d- working a magic show, a real magic show like David Nixon, one was very, very aware of the fact that, that you couldn't take side shots. You couldn't have cameras at the sides because that's where the magician was hiding or whatever else, having not to be to the front. So it was very difficult to shoot from one angle, very difficult to shoot from one angle. And, and we've, we, we found various uh, tricks out how to do it. But um, with Tommy Cooper, a different thing altogether because he blew the joke, he blew the magic before he did it. I don't think I ever, and all the series I did with Tommy, I don't think I ever remembered him doing, doing one successful trick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he just he threw them away. He did them and threw them away. Um, but I mean, you know, with 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 Tommy, he didn't work uh, with Tommy. He worked alongside Tommy. I mean, you know, uh, that's a, and that's a good example, Colin, of what my job was about, Tommy Cooper, because it was about making making artists um, feel as comfortable as possible. You know. Um, in order to be their very best. And in a strange, odd way, I, I let Tommy down very, very badly. Uh, and I think we all did as, as television producers. Everyone worked with Tommy in television. We let him down. How so? Um, well, Tommy was top of the bill in, in clubs and theatre. So he would go on last, which meant that he didn't get on the stage until around 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in clubs, you know, which meant that he didn't get to bed till 4 which meant that he didn't get up until midday, mm. right? Um, and off, or even get up at four o'clock in the afternoon and then get up to, for, for, for the job. Um, and here we are in television. We're saying, oh, Tommy, welcome to, welcome to the world of television. We want you to sparkle at 10 o'clock in the morning for rehearsals. We want you to be at your top form at eight o'clock at night. Um, no, you know, this is not what his body clock was. For, and I have... I, I, I tried so hard, but together with crew over time, security, getting audiences there and back, and all the all the the, the logistics of television, you know, uh, pre- prevented us from ever doing the one thing I wanted to do, which was to do a show with Tommy at twelve o'clock yes. at midnight, you know, when 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 his body clock was ticking, because it it did it did work different to the rest of us, but um, yeah, anyway. and, but he was a genius, wasn't he? Oh, Tommy was absolutely beautiful. He was exactly that. And I think people, uh, you met Tommy, haven't you? Yeah. No, I never got to meet him. I, I was on the cusp of meeting him the night he passed away, actually. I think that's what, what amazed everybody about Tommy when they met him for the first time, is that they met Tommy Cooper, the one they'd seen on television. Yeah. There was no lesser than or more than. There was Tommy, and Tommy would go, I was <laughs> but him, and he was he wasn't performing this was tommy yeah you know? i think that's what what thrilled people when they when they met him for the first time was just how tommy tommy was yeah a bit yeah. like i met i met i when i was doing this is your life i had the privilege once of, of meeting john wayne in uh 
in 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 um, in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, I interviewed uh, and spent a day with John Wayne, which was absolutely wonderful. And at the end of it, I thought I said to Maurice Leonard, who was with me at the time, I said, he, he does the best impression of John Wayne I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> the walk was exactly like Freddie Styles, and the voice was exactly like Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let's stick with um, this is your life then for a moment. Um, I've got an echo of a memory watching the credits rolling in my brain that you worked on the Muhammad Ali show. Yes, I did. Oh, that was, well, a belt, was it? Oh. Well, of course, it meant that Maurice Leonard, us, uh, we, we were all across in America, we spent three weeks over there, uh, and down in Louisville, w- w- filming his family and his, his, his friends, which was fascinating. Uh, I met his first sparring partner and, and, in, and uh, was, was ignorant enough and stupid enough to invite him back to my hotel for a cup of coffee. Uh, and while I was having a cup of coffee, a man came up and checked me out. Of, the, of my own hotel that I was in, uh, and that was the first example I'd ever, I'd ever personally had a racial discrimination. Wow! I'd invited wow. a a black man into this into this stacky hotel, which was white, um, and you know I was asked to leave very nicely, very nicely. But that was in and <laughs> somewhere else to go. But no, I, and uh, the most wonderful time I, I had in oh, I had some great times of doing Muhammad Ali. But we went to Las Vegas. To meet uh, um, Joe Louis, the original Brown Bomber, uh, who now sadly was was uh, had had a stroke, uh, and he was in a bit of a bad way, and he lived in this lovely house in Las in, in Las Vegas where, where we filmed, which was paid for lock, stock, and barrel by Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Oh yeah. my word. Sadly. Yeah, yeah. Kept him in a lap of luxury. Anyway, Joe Louis. So. Uh, and I sat between Joe. Joe was sat down, and the camera was above, above my head. And I sat between his knees, holding his hands uh, with a tissue, feeding him in the line upwards. And he'd do the line, hello there, Muhammad. And I'd lean over and, and do that with the tissue with his mouth. And I, and I, you know, you sometimes see yourself in a situation, and I thought, my God, what a hell of a thing this is. Here I am sitting between Joe his legs with a tissue. Yeah. Giving him the lines to talk to Muhammad Ali. What? What? A, you couldn't write that. No. You couldn't write it. You know. And when we played the film back, because uh, I intercut it with shots of all the brown brown bombery was called. Look, look, um, Louis trophies on the uh, on the things, um, and shot as much of of Joe Louis in sync that I could I had, you know, without my tissue being in the way. Yeah. Um, and you might remember if you saw the show, it's, it's still around. But he just, Muhammad Ali just wept with the with the mere fact that Joe Louis, who he knew was ill, mm. would be bothered to put up with what what we all know is a bit of a a, a trauma when you get a film you into your home. Oh, you know? sure. Uh, That's the, was so moved by that. The thing about you shake hands with Royston Mayo. You are shaking hands with some of the most famous, the person who shook hands with some of the most famous people in the world. I've watched him. <laughs> but that is that degree of separation that you were actually in the company of Joe Louis and Muhammad oh, Ali. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. John Wayne and, no. and, 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 you know, amazing people that you just go, wow. Uh, Asha Bos- Bosley in India, you know, you go, oh. Well, you look back at it, and, and 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 it was part of the job at the time. And I think anybody doing my job would have the same motivation that, that that I've got, which is I've got to create a situation here, an atmosphere here, which is best for the for the performance of performing. Yes, uh, like greeting somebody, you've got to make them feel or or or, or establish with them that they they are in the, in the company of a friend at least. Because you know, most, most, and it's true, most names, big names. I mean, I remember Les Dawson telling me a long time ago, um, and, and, and indeed Mike Yarwood, you know, the same thing. Most big names are aware of the fact that a newspaper man is just around the corner, mm-hmm. and if they do anything inappropriate or say anything inappropriate 
or, or, or allude to anything they shouldn't. Bang, it's all over the newspaper, and that's the end of their, their career because there are people that believe the newspapers still, amazingly, yeah. but there are. Sure. Um, you know, uh, so when big names, big names meet people they don't know, like me, they, they, they immediately go ding, ding, ding. It, this could be somebody that is looking to make themselves famous with a big, big fake story somewhere yeah. down the line. So you have to disabuse them of the fact that you're there for any other reason other than their own benefit, which is what my job as a TV producer, and every TV producer you meet will tell you the same thing. You know, we are there purely and simply to promote the talent we're working with. You know, we're not there for our own benefits. Yes. And I, I, it would be remiss of me, I'm just busking this thought now, to ask you about, not to ask you about John Wayne. What was he like? Oh, he was absolutely wonderful. We, he, we, his son fixed the, the thing up to be in Studio 8, I think in Burbank, at 7.30 in the morning. So Morris and I turned up with our 16mm camera. Uh, Peter, the cameraman, the three of us, and the sound man, again, no. Which, anyway, turned up as his little unit. So this Studio 86, and the guy said, yeah, 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 shows the door. We walked into this black studio, black, black. And there was one makeup mirror in, in the middle on the floor on the chair. And I said, that's where we're going to do it. That's the only thing we've got here. Does it work? Plug it in. I plug it in. It looked fantastic. We set up at past seven. We set up for eight o'clock. Uh, and the, the Duke, Michael said his son, the Duke will be with you at 8.15. 8.15 on the, on the nose, out of this blackness, suddenly appeared a white door. Right, and, and in the door was John Wayne, and the lights went on in the studio. And he walked towards us about 50 yards, and he did the John Wayne walk. You know, I thought, I don't believe I'm looking at it. And he'd been living in the studio in a great big RV, massive RV in the studio, which is where he lived. So we did the interview, and, and I and great to meet somebody from England. I love England, I love he, he loved Great Britain. Mm. Uh, uh, and I said, I, I, it's wonderful, and thank you so much for... T- we were doing the tribute, to, by the way, to Patricia O'Neill. Oh, yes. Mohammed this was Because uh, while we were there, we picked up other interviews as well, so this was for, 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 uh, for, for, for Patricia. So, um, and we chatted, and, and he became... Like, I'm chatting to you now, suddenly, because it all goes away. And then, so we finished the interview. Oh, I want one minute to come, and he did it brilliantly. Of course, he did his John Wayne. Uh, we finished and wrapped up, and he said, uh, you want a drink? And we said, oh, yeah, please. So we went back to his RV, Morris and I, and we had tequila with John Wayne in his RV uh, and got splattered. <laughs> uh, and absolutely and, uh, unbelievable. And then, and then we opened the door, and, and the studio that had been empty before was now full. And it was full. And this uh, alerted me to what being an international star meant. And this, it, it never occurred to me before what an international star did, had to do. In the, in the studio, we were about, I'd say, 50 groups of 10, all plotted around the studio, mm. all around the thing. Um, and he went from one to another to another. And, of course, they all... And the, these people were from the Netherlands, China, Hungary, all over the world. And there were winners of competitions of various things where the, the prize was to, to meet with John Wayne for, you know, that was oh, the prize, wow. you know, all over the world. And they did, and what, what the, how the money went, I don't know. But, and of course, they all wanted the picture of him going with, with, with them shooting him, holding the gun to his face. They all wanted that picture. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. So and he, he walked around and he made every group feel like they were the only group in the room, which is a talent in itself. Mm. He made every group feel important, which was talent again. And I'm like, we stood, Morris and I stood there going, my God, this is what being an international star means. And if, if he's charging $20 a shot here, he's, 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 he's undervaluing himself by a couple of thousand. Because it was unbelievable to see this man work, these, these little groups. Not easy to do. And then we walked out into the next studio in, in Verbank where they were having 
um, a uh, um, charity lunch for doesn't matter, but the big star. Mm. So all the big stars were walking in. But it was a day uh, we spent where we went to do one minute to camera with John Wayne and ended up uh, witnessing what it was like just to be an international superstar. And, and I've never forgotten that. It was quite wonderful. Incredible yeah. memory. Incredible. Oh, you're you're in America then. And I said in one of the intros to our chats that you've worked all over the world. Tell me about India, because I got a message from Leslie Davis, the television executive, said <laughs> you must ask Royston Mayer about the V Awards in India. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like BM, it's like uh, MTV, I think, here. Hmm. I think you call it MTV uh, in India, same thing. Um, uh, oh, if I, it's very difficult to do because if I, if I shoot through the names, you won't have heard them. Uh, like Dalamendi. Have you ever heard of Dalamendi? A massive star. Um, and because of the heat in, 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 in India, we had to rehearse in the night. So at midnight, we started rehearsing. So at three o'clock in the morning, I was there with Dalamendi. A man turned up in, on a bicycle from Bombay. Uh, and he said, I'm, I'm here to do the fireworks. And I said, really? And he got a box of fireworks in the back. So I'll go over there, will you please? And show me what you can do. So uh, he went over the thing and he set the fireworks off and nearly burnt the stage down at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, so he was back on his bike to Bombay. Then he just turned up out of the blue. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what happened in India, you see, Colin, was, was quite strange. We, I, I was invited, before I went over with Leslie, I was invited to go to India um, by Action Time, who was commissioned by Carlton Television at the time, to find out, to do a report, a written report, on the feasibility of, of India as a commercial uh, possibility, uh, whether you could do commercial television. So I went to India to do that and spent a miserable time a really miserable time trying to get in to Indian Indian people's heads. You know, I'm Romeo, I'm from I'm from England, English television, all right, fine, walk away. You know, not not wanting to know me at all. Mm-hmm. And I found out that they, I'm not going to say the name, but I found out that there'd been a man from England out there before me who had treated the Indian people like the Raj. And he treated them very, 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 very badly in every way possible. And that was their, that was their view of a, 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 an English or a British TV producer. So I had to undo that somehow. How you do that, I don't know to this day. Uh, I did it eventually by accident. Uh, a ter- terrifying thing about television in India was that none of them in television wanted to work in television because the big thing in India is film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's Bollywood. That's where they all want to work. Yeah. So television is only a, 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 just a, just a step in, into working in film. So anyway, I was really, really depressed. I mean, it's very quick. Really depressed. And I was seeing in the old Briar Hotel in, in New Delhi, and um, I went to the top bar, the rooftop bar, where it was empty. And I thought, all right, I'll sit down here and and uh, and, and give the Johnny Walker a bit of a worthy. <laughs> and I was sitting at the bar there. Uh, and suddenly an Indian man sat next to me and ordered a large Shivash Regal. Wow. Well, I came and, and then eventually I said to him, now either you're celebrating something and you've got nobody to celebrate with, or you just start to walk out there and jump off the roof, which is it? And he said, jumping off the roof sounds... sounds so he got talking. He'd just come from, he was, he, I said, tell, tell me what's your problem. He said, oh, you wouldn't understand it. Um, it's about television production. I said, oh, really? <laughs> Try me. <laughs> His name was Karun Prabhakaran. He's still a friend. He's a top producer in, in Bollywood now. Uh, then he'd been to Dordeshan, the only television outset where they do a barter system. That is where you, Colin, you write a play, you take it to Dordeshan, they read it and they go, that's very good, very good, yes, we'd like that. Take it to reception, you take the place to reception, the reception you say, fine, lovely. I say, give me uh, $100,000, please. He go, fine, I've just written the play, it's my, my play. No, yeah, you give me 100000 So you'd give them 100000 And then you'd walk next door to Procter & Gamble and you'd just bought yourself an hour of Dordeshan television. 
That's what you just bought yourself. Whoa. Right? And you'd, you'd now sell that hour, that time, to whoever you could buy a Procter & Gamble. And the plane, the, the, the plane was in, in amongst it all. But that was the deal. So you had to get your money back from what you'd just spent and hopefully a bit of margin as well. A completely different way of working, totally different to anything we know in England, called Barter Television. Interesting. And this guy, yeah, this guy had done a number on 26 programmes. Right, and he'd just been to Dordesham just before he came up, and they told him, "Sorry, Karen, we're only doing six. We're cutting you money." Oh my right? gosh! So he's paid out, yeah, and he can't get the money back. And he's saying, "So I've got a, uh, an office, I've got computers, I've got staff, I've got people, I've got time, and I and I can't do anything with it." And I said, "You believe what I'm looking for? I'm looking for an office." full of people and computers and time. That's what I'm looking for, to do the programme. And it was about, and I went there, I met the boss of it, Siddharth Basu, who's very, very famous now. And again, in, they do Krobati, which is, uh, um, um, who wants to be a millionaire? Mm-hmm. In India, it's called Krobati. And Siddharth Basu and Karun still do that to this day. Yeah, a massive programme mm-hmm. with Amitabh Bashan, who is like, he talks star, mm-hmm. Amitabh Bashan is... John Wayne Plus, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and and, and th- that's how we began in Synergy. And, and, and they're still friends to this day. Uh, you know, the, the, Siddharth's wife, and, and Anita, is still a producer. Oh, it's wonderful. And it was all quite by accident. Mm. So, you know, I believe in serendipity. I really do. Yeah. And, and because, because Siddharth and Karun and Anita and Perry and all these wonderful people at Synergy accepted me because of our mission with Karan. Therefore, the studio staff did, and I was accepted and being regarded differently than the guy before me. Yeah, you undid um, all the wrong. Sheer luck. Sheer luck. Yeah. No, I think maybe what happens is that the, the god of light entertainment kisses you on the head and says, there's a bit of help. Tell me about... Um, while we were abroad and working with folk from overseas, tell me about working with Pavarotti, the great Luciano. <laughs> Again, you know, being a freelance director, the, the, the phone goes and you never know whether it's going to be somebody changing your shift your car or somebody offering you a job. You know, you never know. Oh. Uh, and on this particular occasion, the phone went is Rocky Oldham. Very, if not Woodson, now, God bless him, he, he went, he passed a couple of years, but a wonderful man. Anyway, then. And it was Rocky and a fantastic producer. And he said, hey, Roy, he said, what are you doing on Monday? So I said, well, not a lot, no way. So good. <clears throat> I'll send you tickets over. We're going to Monte Carlo for the day. <laughs> I, oh, really? Fine, fine. So we went to Monte Carlo for lunch. And in Monte Carlo, Rocky took me for fish and chips. And that's why I had in Monte Carlo. Best restaurant in Monte Carlo. So I said, right, okay, what are we doing? And he said, well, the thing is this, the World Cup, They've got the three tenors working at the World Cup, right? But the three tenors are going to rehearse here in Monte Carlo, right, in front of, of um, uh, his lord, the, 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 the king of Monte Carlo, Prince Rainier, mm. and his family, as a charity do. And that's going to be their rehearsal. And I think it's a good time to get some shots of them not performing because Warner Brothers have employed me to do a commercial and they've said, we want the, the three tenors laughing. We haven't got any shots of them laughing informally anywhere, right? So I said, great. So, uh, so we, we'll get Pavarotti on the football pitch. And, and Rocky said, forget it. Forget that. Nobody in this world can get Pavarotti to k- kick a football. Nobody. But nobody. So I said, I will. And, and Rocky said, no, I won't. I said, yes, I will. Um, so we had a bet. And I said, I can't kick a bloody football. So anyway... Uh-huh. We went to, to 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 do this rehearsal with uh, and we had to greet all these three tenors, four tenors with uh, um, uh, uh, Mater, Stuby Mater, the conductor for support, and off trains and planes and boats as they came in, right? So they all came in, we got very short. They're always grumpy as hell, just as grumpy. So we haven't anything we could use, really, of any importance. So um, I'm there in the hotel, and we're going to get Pavarotti arriving at the hotel, right? So I'm thinking, how can I do this? I know. 
There is no way any human being in this world, no, I don't care who they are, if they like football, and, and we know that Pavarotti did like football a lot, there's no way that, that if they saw a football, they couldn't not kick it. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. So we're waiting inside the foyer of the hotel, waiting for Pavarotti to arrive. And, I've, and I'm ready to put my football, which I bought from WH Smith in Heathrow, Right in a plastic bag, and I'm I'm ready to put the football on the mat outside the hotel. So when he gets out of the car, he sees the football wallop. So we're all there, and I hear Pavarotti, Pavarotti over the intercom. He's coming right fast. So I'm out the gate, put the football down, come back into the camera, and this flunky out of the hotel rushes out, picks the football up, and takes it back in. So, <laughs> so and. The door opens, I think, oh, I've lost my chance. Door opens, and it's not Pavarotti, it's somebody else, it's some some managers that have been using their cars or something. So I thought, thank God for that. And I says, this flunky, this French monkey, you, you touched my football again. You you even think about touching my football. My football, you touch it, I'll break in the garden. <laughs> and in Greek language, now you must go understand, Colin, I hate football. Right? <laughs> Passionate about football. So Pavarotti, Pavarotti coming again. So I put the football down. He got out of the car. And thank God he kicked the football to somebody. They kicked it back. He picked it up. He headed it to somebody else. And I've got my shots. I've, and I've won my bets. And, and it's on film. It's on, on film. You can see this day it was used. So then we're, 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 we're doing a press thing. And Pavarotti shouts over to me, hey, where's, have you got your football? To me, have I got my football? Right. So, well, I'm going to so get the football from the hotel room because we're on the hotel. Mm. And I've got this shot, and it's on film. I'll, I'll send you a link to it of Warner Brother commercial. I've got Pavarotti kicking the football to Zubin Mater, who picks it up, who heads it to Carreras, who picks it up and kicks it back to uh, Pavarotti, who does a double backflip. And uh, I've got this magic piece of, of, of football television and of course the shot with them all holding the football and that was the promotion spot for the world cup but that right. was that was rocky oldham giving me a bet over yeah. pavarotti and, and and i mean needless to say pavarotti to stand three inch or three inches two foot away from mm. pavarotti when he's singing and rehearsal uh, was unbelievable Right. No human being can be as loud as that and be as perfect as that. It was absolutely fascinating. I loved every minute of it. Oh, yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. And you've got a love for music anyway, haven't you? Oh, yeah. In the sense yeah. that, well, I, the reason I mentioned it, because what flashed in my mind when then was having chatted with eminent directors like Ian Hamilton and Kevin Bishop and Jonathan Glazier. They all love their music, and you do too. But I would contend that you've been directing music through all the great eras, eras of popular music development from the 50s all the way through to almost I think you're now. Right, yeah. I mean, even as a cameraman, you know, I was, I was a cameraman on Oh Boy, Boy Meets Girls with Jack Good, with wow. Marty, Marty Wilde and uh, Ian and the Vernon Girls and uh, Billy, you know, Billy, oh, I mean, it just, just went on and on and on. Vin, Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran people coming over to Disbury to ABC for this yeah. fantastic programme that went out live, rock and roll, and with the, with the, the great Lord Rockingham's 11. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me dwell on that then. I didn't know that you were involved in, in camera work on, um, on Oh Boy, because that really was proper pioneering stuff in the 50s, wasn't it? Oh, the director was Ben Churchill or, or Rita Gillespie, one of the two. But they were doing things with cameras which really weren't allowed, really, you know, which we, which we loved as camera operators. We just loved them doing And, of course, you saw, because music's got, unlike, it's strange, going off the subject and yet back on it, it's conversation like you and I are talking now. If you were trying to cut this on cameras, you'd never know when you were going to chip in or I was going to chip in unless you were some sort of a clairvoyant. Yes. Um, yeah. With music, you do know because it's got a structure. You know, so suddenly cutting cameras to music is a lot easier because it's got a, a structure, usually a four-bar structure or whatever else it is, but it's got a, you know, you know when something's going to change. 
because it's it those those are the laws of music. Mm. So um, that was new to us in as a camera crew to, to, because we've, we'd been doing scripted stuff and dramas and things. So suddenly, um, you know, there's a new way of doing things, and there was no uh, rule of three. Here we had a rule of anything you fancy. Mm. You know, the under the under shot from under up somebody's nose, which you'd never dream of doing anywhere else. You could do this in in rock and roll, and. We'd never seen fast cutting before, and Richard Gillespie used to do fast cutting. We'd never seen that before. Yeah, you know, he used, used to shout down all, everybody, hold the camera still. So we all held them still, and she'd go ticka 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 round them all. You know. Wow. So, um, learning music as a cameraman was, was very interesting because you know you you could you could cock it up very very simply by by not doing it as a director told you to. Yes, um, we learned that, but it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And that director's name was Rita, Rita Gillespie. Rita Gillespie. Now that was in the fifties. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes, there are an awful lot of women directors now who are magnificent at what they do. Well, Marjorie Roos, Marjorie Baker, uh, and Rita Gillespie. They were the they were the three main women directors back there in the fifties as well. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you got the chance then to direct music on what was what turned out to be at Time Tees, uh, the second most important show, second only to Top of the Pops in the music industry, and that was Razamataz. Yeah, Razamataz, not uh, not Razamataz. We, we took the uh, out of the middle of Razamataz. Oh. The reason it was so good, Colin, was because it was unashamedly a show that promoted new releases. That was unashamedly, which meant that record companies could send their promotional peer, people up to Newcastle with the new discs, and we'd listen and we'd decide whether or not it was any good. Or, And you could tell by the amount of money the record company was spending on the promotions to whether it's going to be a hit or not. So these people come up with these handful of new releases. But at the same time, we got the tube running. We, we were Wednesdays, they were Fridays. Yeah. So they got the tube office just up the corridor which meant that these people from the record companies could not only bring their new releases, they could bring their albums as well and go and sell album album tracks. So it was worth the record company's time and money to travel from London to Newcastle upon time because they could kill two birds in one stone. They'd got two programmes. They'd got If You Like Top of the Pops in Rasmus and If You Like the Old Grey Whistle Test in the Tube. Mm. But we, we we were modern. The Tube was better than Old Grey Whistle Test because it was modern, more modern technology. But, you know, so you've got these two completely different music programmes uh, all in one, all on the one roof. Mm. And, and, um, and the Tube benefited greatly from Rasmus and Rasmus benefited greatly from the Tube. Mm. You know, the two, the two programmes run together like, like, uh, like a pair, and it yeah. was wonderful. Yeah, yeah work, working hand in glove with one another. And, of course, yeah. that explains why, of course, you could attract such brilliant pop names to the north uh northeast quite frankly which is sort of out yeah. of the record plugger's way really very um, much out of the way but people soon learned that newcastle upon time was a brilliant town to be in especially if you like to drink so it was <laughs> worth their while coming on saying the night uh i'm bringing the artists up and the artists loved it i mean meatloaf just absolutely adored me the person that loved it most that made uh, two jermaine jackson thought it was unbelievable mm. and uh, um, uh, 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 Phil Everly. oh yeah yeah. No, yeah Phil Everly. Uh, he came up a lot he thought it was wonderful I mean you know the Everly brothers is like again like meeting John Wayne and Phil Everly was uh, you know but, but they, they they love Newcastle and of, and, and of course golf you can't get better golf courses than than the the links courses up in up in the northeast. They're wonderful. So a lot of people came up for golf as well. Sure, I, I mentioned Mr. Loaf, Mr. Meatloaf. Nice man. Wonderful man. Ah, wonderful good. man. That's yes, great. he was. Uh, he, he he knew the joke. Uh, was uh, one of the, he, he he put it on when it needed being put on. Hmm. But he was a gentle creature. He really was. Um, I tried. He, he, he told me his ambition was to play Falstaff uh, in a Shakespearean play. That was his ambition. I tried like mad uh, to interest people in in, in booking him uh, in, in in Shakespeare plays 
but failed miserably. But uh, that was it. I don't think he ever did it, but he would have made a great full star. Oh, and, and it, would have, it would have been a box office hit, wouldn't it? People would have come from miles around, so. countries around, rightly so, to yeah. see to see the great. I, I, I think you know, again, people put put meatloaf in a in a in a heavy rock uh, shelf, and that's where he belonged. I mean, there was much more to him. He was mm. a very gentle man. He was a very talented man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you worked with the great Jules. Speaking of the tube, you worked with the great Jules Holland, of course. <laughs> I imagine at a time when now, of course, he's the elder statesman of music, but that was at a time when he was quite rad and 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 quite um, quite raunchy, quite radical. Yeah. Mm. And did he respond well to I mean, whatever directorial well, advice you, you, you gave? You, you you have to understand that Jules was a very wealthy man at the time he came up. He'd been you know he'd been with with all sorts of big. Big, big bands. Mm. Um, Squeezing so stuff, So he was yeah. his own man, you know. Um, he was his own man. He had his own way of doing things. Uh, he wasn't really like a performer in, like, Tonka, he wasn't, his performance, he didn't rate as being a performance. He was just talking to camera or talking to cards. I, I think Rasmus and the Tube benefited uh, and all, all the all the the presenters did as well, by having a fantastic team of researchers. Uh, we, we, they were unbelievable. I mean, my my researchers w- were looking for new new releases and and what meant what, and and but the the researchers on the tube, my God, they were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant. So the tube benefited the producers. The directors and the presenters benefited from this magnificent team, and I think Jules recognised very early on that he was talking to researchers here who knew their subject inside out and backwards. Mm. You know, they did, um, and I mean, much of the stuff they did in with Fats Domino and things in 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 uh, in New Orleans. You know, they were. Those things were jacked up by members of the uh, of, of the Chinese um, research department, the, the, the crew up there. Yeah, and Jules was lovely. I mean, I, I, the awful thing about Jules was uh, it was it was I don't know whether you can tell this story or not. Oh, yeah, we'll try anyway. The awful thing about Jules was he would do as he was told. He was in the green room one day. And the floor manager came in and said, Jules, quickly, in studio one now, you're on the air in 30 seconds. It's a live promotion spot, please, for the tube. Right? So he run through and he stood there and he said, who's on? And, who's on? Who's on? Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. In three, two, you, you, Jules. I am. We want to be, you want to, if you want to catch up with things and, and don't be squirmed and have a look at the, the tube is on, on tonight, later on, to, and you're going to really enjoy it. And we've got, uh, I don't know, we've got on, but they're all great bands, and, and that's it. And uh, and, and the floor is just winding him, not winding him up, stretchy, stretchy, stretchy. stretchy. So, you know, uh, and we've got uh, all this, uh, uh, I don't Oh, it's a great band from uh, from uh, I think they're from America. I'm not sure where they're from. It is. And he was making a complete holics of this of this spot, uh, and and they, they kept stretching him until until no more until there was blood coming out of his eyes nearly, uh, and they all fell apart laughing. And it was a joke. They were just winding him up. Oh no! Funny, yeah, funny joke, right? So now, and this is true, Colin. You wind the clock forward six months, right? One day, Jules is in the canteen, I think, and somebody comes up and says, you want it in studio one? Uh, quickly, they, they want to do a promotion spot, a live promotion spot for the tube. So Jules went, yes, of course they do. <laughs> so he walked down, very calmly, stood down his mark. Right. Uh, I won't use the words he used, but the light came on, they cued him, and he said, don't be a twat, watch the tube. Right. It didn't say that. It was much worse. Yes. yes. Okay. Oh my that God. went out between Bugs Bunny and the birthdays. <laughs> and it earned Time Tees a reprimand from the... Yeah. They all went, you know. Does, so, I mean, uh, and Jules wasn't to blame, but, of course, he got the blame. You know, of course he did. Yeah. He wasn't to blame. Yeah, there's, there's a lesson in there somewhere, isn't there? You at the Millennium celebrations, 
one millennium mm. to the next, you were involved in the BBC's 26-hour coverage of the celebration of the millennium. What was your role in that? I was one of six producers. Um, um, our job was to fit as many... We, the programme was going to follow the sun around the globe uh, to, 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 to see all the various places celebrate uh, New Year as, mm-hmm. as, as midnight went on each area. Yeah. So, um, and that meant in, in Great Britain there was, there was lots of cities doing things, but in Taipan there was, and in, in uh, well, everywhere, there was massive celebrations because this wasn't, wasn't a British thing by any means you know mm-hmm. this was a world a global thing yeah. so because of the world's difference it was easy for us because we were in london london being the home of greenwich greenwich meantime being the home of of, of time so we used that uh, um as as a as a, a basis uh, and then went around the world so we were looking and talking with what was going on and we were doing things to the frame virtually so it was a very good, it was about six months I was on it, I think. Yeah. There was all, all manner of things happening, and, and uh, we're all working. Still to this day, great, great friends with Neil Eccles. He left that show and went to work for for, for Her Majesty's listening Yeah, post. yeah. And Gosh. Gosh. Neil Eccles yeah. from, from um, Events Entertainment at the BBC. That's yeah. right. My That's wife right, Catherine yeah. worked with him when she was a vision mixer. My goodness Wonderful. me. Yeah. She said in touch with my own. I, I think Catherine's still in touch with him. Yeah. Oh, my goodness yeah, me. Oh, yeah. God. It strikes me, you know, it, your incredible career. Black and white days, turret cameras at Didsbury. You have seen television evolve to its present digital magnificence. And it strikes me that nothing daunts you. You seem to have evolved with it, which I guess is that is testament to your longevity in terms of career. But Nothing seems to frighten you, I would say. It's a strange thing the, 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 about being frightened. Uh, Victor Spinetti uh, told me a long, long time ago uh, that if you weren't frightened with what you were about to do, uh, then you were doing it wrong. Um, that's what he told me. And, and, and it's true. Uh, a couple of years back, I did a monologue uh, on stage in Manchester, in a Manchester, a small Manchester theatre, I don't know, fitting a hundred or not or so, with Maxine Peake and people like that in the audience, a black child, and I, and I, I had to go out and do a thirty-minute monologue, which I'd learnt. Um, and the first thing I, I had to enter with a tray of drinks, uh, and I was standing there on the side of the stage with this tray of drinks and listening to the music. I've never been as frightened in all my life, and this is only about five, five, five years ago. Um, I remember putting the tray of drinks down. I remember doing the first line, and after that, I remember very little about it. Oh. I know I cried in the middle of it. Uh, I know I was on script all the way through. Um, I know that it worked because I was working to completely silence and then reactions and the applause when i'd finished the thing was was magnificent and i came off stage uh and listened to this applause and i'm burst into tears colin mm. which is something that i'm not not usually known for doing is at all but i did and that's fear that was fear and i remember what victor spinetti said and i've never felt as proud of myself in my life as i did at the end of that monologue yeah, fantastic. Similarly, you know, um, there are other moments. I was doing, um, uh, I was doing the 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 International Indian uh, Film Awards, the Bollywood Awards, right? Mm. And we were in uh, the Sun City in 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 South Africa, in Johannesburg, right? And, and and it was a big show. It was a massive, show, as you can imagine, a massive show, full of Indian thing, and. One of the acts we'd got in there was a, and I can't remember the name, I wish I could, but one of those was a, was a um, an acrobatic act that worked on this little scaffolding. This is a, 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 
a ladder and it was but it was a scaffolding and they did an amazing thing on the scaffolding now that scaffolding had to be anchored to the floor properly otherwise he'd come off and kill themselves you see and I mean, we were told that so we did a lot of rehearsals about anchoring this thing and eventually we, they said we're going right okay now we'll anchor it from start one time it exactly mark it exactly and we've got it rehearsed so we did that bump, 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 and it takes exactly one minute five seconds to do right with all the right people doing the right job at the right time so fine end of that and then so we're doing the job we're on the air i think it's 40 million viewers we've got in china i think and in india we're on the air and because i'm looking at a lot of, a lot of monitors in 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 the control room uh the presenter walks down. I'm not going to say his name because because it, it's a shame for him. But anyway, the presenter walks down, and as he's doing the link to this acrobat man, I can see over here, way off to my right, that there's the 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 rigging hasn't been done properly for for this prop. Mm-hmm. It's not been anchored properly. I can see that, and there are two people arguing over it. I can't hear them. I can see them arguing over this thing, but it's not ready. And there's no way that I, being in charge of production, are going to put these people's lives in jeopardy, not for the sake of a television program. Mm. So I faded black. And 40 million viewers are black channel. While the, the reason I faded black is because I said to the presenter, keep padding, keep going, keep talking, keep padding until I, I give you a cue. And he couldn't do it. He was he'd, he'd got to the end of his auto cue on, on the script and he couldn't ad live after that. He wasn't able to ad live. That's right. why I'm not giving him his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wasn't that, that professional. A normal professional guy would have would have waffled, told a joke, sang a song, done a dance, done anything. You know, mm-hmm. A professional would have done that. He didn't. Um anyway. So because he didn't, and it was all embarrassing, I don't know what's happening. I don't know. I, don't know, I, don't know, I think it's black. Mm. Uh, as a result of which I didn't get invited to do another. Uh, international t- television award show because I was the guy that had taken him off the air. Yes, you know? yes. Uh, and to this day, I often say to myself, well, I wonder what would have been better, me doing the Bollywood Awards every year as a thing, knowing that I just killed a couple of French acrobats. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, um, so you know, those sort of decisions come along a bit, a bit, a bit heavy going, and th- 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 those make you frightened. Yes. That's fear. Yes, I understand. Yeah. I suppose, you know, there's something to be said, Roy, based on your experience, is that when you're working on a live show, sometimes it's better to have an entertainer fronting the show rather than a presenter per se, because at least that a, 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 an entertainer can go to their default act if they've got to fill for two minutes. Absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Uh, I mean, Des O'Connor was the best of the lot. He could go on, he could, you know, it was stopping Des that was the problem. <laughs> yes. You know, um, Max Bygraves was another one that, that had a wonderful, wonderful uh, ad, ad libery about him, but he mm. didn't it didn't feel like ad lib. It just felt like conversation with him. Yeah. But yes, I mean, most, most good pros have got the ability to go into ad lib mode. I'm now... And um, the red light's on, and it's and it's not going to go off mode. Um, there are other people who we know, who are big stars, who are completely auto auto cue bound. You know, once the auto cue stops, they're knackered. Yes, exactly that. Which I guess that was the point I was making. You mentioned about uh, a half-hour monologue and what an experience that was. I suppose when you've been on stage in that kind of intimate setting under pressure like that, appearing on a show like great fun show like off their rockers must have been a joy as an actor oh yeah yeah well i mean i auditioned for that thinking it was candy camera you know i went to st Anne's square in manchester and met this guy and he said uh, right i want you to go out there and and ask this woman how you turn your phone off would you as if you don't know and and uh, so i said certainly so he gave me a phone. I thought, well, obviously, he's rigged the phone so it won't go off. You know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, years before, many years before, with Jonathan Ralph, I'd done Candy Camera. We did that out of Disbury. So we were great fans of Candy Camera. 
Um, and Peter Doolay had done Kami Camera and he was a friend of mine. You know, he, he, was, he produced a lot of shows that I directed in my early days. Mm. Uh, so I thought, oh, wonderful. You know, they're bringing Kami Camera back. Fantastic. With, with various people. Uh, and that's what I thought it was. So I did it as if, as if I was doing Kami Camera. And didn't hear a thing. Um, and then about oh, I know, a month later, they said, come on, you're part of the team. And that was the beginning of Off Their Rockers, which was uh, four years of sheer joy, I can tell you. I'll bet. I'll bet. And great yeah. fun to do. Great fun. Oh, to do. wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Were you involved in some of the scenarios, maybe? Did you, did you go along to, to a, a meeting and say, wouldn't it be a good idea if? No. Oddly enough, they... The, 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 first, the first four series were written brilliantly. Uh, a mixture of stunts that had been done in America uh, that had been brought over and, uh, to be used and, and, and anglicised here. And I think the production company thought, oh, it's fairly easy, we've got it running now, you know, we'll, we won't bother spending money on, on uh, script writers. And, and, and they didn't. And, and that's where it went wrong. Suddenly we got sketches that were not funny. And furthermore, the joke had gone. The joke wasn't whether old people could get it up or not. That wasn't the joke. Mm-hmm. You know, the joke wasn't wasn't about sex, wasn't about body functions. It wasn't about that. It was about, if you like, old people returning to childhood, if you want. That was, you know, I'm finding, finding it silly. Yes. It's a silly thing to do. Yeah. Having so, a pic- so, so the last series turned into being a mucky series, and that's why it failed. That's why yeah. it came off. Yeah. But the first four series are, are brilliant. Yeah, they were excellent. I, 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 it derived enormous joy watching those. Yeah, and of course, you know, you've you've played several roles in Emmerdale now. Uh, <laughs> last Road to Pembury. I mean, proper drama stuff. I mean, it's serious Pemberley. stuff from a yeah, Pembury from a from an actor's point of view. So, do you miss directing? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd, go, I'd, go, I'd, I'd walk away from this right now and go and direct a programme uh, if it was a multi-camera programme. But it's quite different, you see, now, because my skill was about choreographing cameras with great big cables on the back and picking pictures all to go together uh, down one wire, um, mm. picking them at the time that it happened. Nowadays... Every camera records its own output. So it's all done, all done now in, 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 in uh, post-production. My favourite programme at the moment is Richard Ullman's uh, House, of, uh, House of Games, which I, I, I adore. I mean, I, but every time I look at it, I think, how oh, fantastic. That couldn't have been shot as it happened unless the vision mixer and the director were clairvoyant because the shot goes to somebody and they talk. It goes to them and they talk. Impossible. Yes. The way the way we heard it was you heard a voice and you cut to it as fast as you could. Yes. So it's, a, it's that little bit of difference between the two. And I know that the entire Richard Allman's show is is edited in post-production by just looking at it. Mm. You know, um, I just wish if anybody listens to this from the Richard Allman show that they would remember that the viewer would like to see what's on the screen sometimes as well. Anyway, that's just a little hint. Sure. Yes, absolutely. But also we could drop some very, very hefty hints to the to Richard Osmond's production team that uh, uh, there's an actor called Royston Mayo who would look very, very good on that show as, as one, of the, <laughs> one of the contestants, believe you me. Yeah, so the viewers have to know who the hell they are. I think that's the problem. Well, I mean, I think it's, so- it's lovely to have a name called Royston Mayo because a lot of people have heard it. Uh, and I hear that a lot. Oh, I remember my grandma used to talk about that name. But, uh, you know, they, they haven't a clue who I am. And, I mean, that's the, I was in television to make television programmes, not to be famous, you know. Well, uh, true enough, yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I hope, sir, I hope and pray, you've got a book on the go because your memories now really should be recorded to the page for posterity because your life is a history of British television. Well, I'm afraid I'm the same as everybody else in this world. I've, I've got a, a book half done. Uh, I keep trying a bit and then putting a bit down and doing a bit more. And uh, I, I can't seem to get it done. I, I mean, you said to me last time, you must do it. And, and that, since our last chat, you know, my wife Sarah has been saying that. You see, see, they're, they're right. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. 
so I'll start again. I haven't got a title for it at the moment. Uh, well, I can't find it. What I don't want, you see, I don't want to write a book that, that, that said, oh, and then I, and then I, and then after that I, and then I did. I don't want that. I want it to be a book that makes somebody laugh. Yeah, uh, I want a book that is of interest to, to, to people that, that, that relates to people that yeah. they say, Oh, well, you, know, you know, that was a good idea. That was a good idea. I, want it, I want it to be an entertaining book, not just a, 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 a big yawn about you know what I did and when I did it. Because I'm a new yeah. the, the, title, the titles I've got, I've got one which my favorite, and then and it went away, which is Royce and I must grow up. That was the first title I had because I've always felt, you know, somebody once said, you know, that you must grow up. And I said, when I tried it once and it was the worst 17 seconds of my life. <laughs> Maybe, you know, the way to approach the book is the way we've approached this conversation in a kind of scattergun kind of way without any chronological order to it. Just, oh, here's another memory. Here's some stuff about Huey Green that I've just remembered. Here's some stuff about meeting Muhammad Ali. Maybe that's the approach to it. Uh, and let me leave, leave that thought with you. Let me leave that thought with you. Yeah. And also, I think it's better for you to do it, Roy, than having someone come in and do it for you, do it, having a ghostwriter. Those memories are very special to you, and you bring such a personality and a personal aspect to those stories. It would be tragic if you didn't find the time to get them all down. Here's the thing. I'm going to thank you very, very much in time for, uh, very much indeed for the time that you, you've, given us all sharing your memories and i'm going to say thank you very much indeed for the decades of entertainment you've given us all on british television thank you for pioneering the industry thank you for creating some of the genres but for me personally there was a there was a young man in paddington not very old watching opportunity knocks and that show first got me interested in show business and in television and it changed his life and that's why that young boy is talking to you now. So personally from me, thank you so, so much for changing my life. My great pleasure. I wish you Green could have heard that. That's wonderful. Ah, great. We have been speaking, ladies and gentlemen, with the legend that is Mr. Royston Mayo. Thank you, Roy, so much. Thank you. Thank you.